You're listening to the May 20th edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, co-producer of The Close-Up. And this is Eugene Hernandez, deputy director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. On this edition of The Close-Up, we're featuring Chinese filmmaker Zha Zhang whose latest film, Mountains May Depart, is currently screening at the 2015 Cannes Film Festival in France. Zhajanke is a giant of world cinema. He's generally regarded as the leader of the sixth-generation movement of Chinese cinema, and his work has received high praise from film critics all around the world. In addition to presenting his latest film in Cannes, the director was also honored with the Kuros Door Award during the director's fortnight sidebar. This prize is given each year to a director whose work shows courage and independence. Former winners have included Jane Campion, David Cronenberg, and Jim Jarmusch. Zha Zhenka has had six films in the New York Film Festival here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, starting with Platform back in 2000. In 2008, Zha came to present his documentary fiction hybrid, 24 City, about the changing industrial landscape of Chengdu, as a factory is torn down and replaced by luxury flats. During the festival, the filmmaker joined Scott Foundis for an HBO director's dialogue here at the Film Society. In it, he discussed in depth his early filmmaking career, his love of the seminal Chinese film Yellow Earth, and his criticism of the approach of the fifth generation of Chinese cinema, which preceded him. Zha was joined on stage by a translator for the conversation. Let's go now to the discussion between Scott Foundis and Zha Zhenka at the 46th New York Film Festival. Hey, this is Michael, one of the producers of The Close-Up. I just wanted to issue a small disclaimer that the sound quality is not quite up to the standards that we're used to. Nevertheless, it's a great talk, and we're excited to share it, but just wanted to let you know that if it sounds a little distorted at times, that's why. So without further ado, Scott found us in conversation with Jajan Ka. Just, uh, I'll just begin by saying that uh, it's a real pleasure for me to be here today because I think there are, um, you know, there are great filmmakers and then there are filmmakers who kind of show us an entire world in their movies, by which I don't necessarily mean that they show us a part of the world that we don't maybe know that well, although that certainly applies in this case, but that they show us an entire way of looking at the world, looking at people, looking at uh, changes over time. And I think that's, uh, that's uh, what Zha Zhenke has done in his, really just in a, in a remarkable decade of making movies um, and has really come to define, I think, what Chinese cinema is today. Um, but I'm actually going to begin by, uh, by asking him if he can tell us a little bit about um, before you started making movies. I know you, you, you grew up uh, in, in Fenyang, a, a place where several of your films take place. And that then you actually went to uh, to, to study art in, at the university there. Um, when did you come to change your course to decide that you wanted to pursue film? I was born in the 1970s in a province called Shanxi Province in the county called Fenyang. And Shanxi is a province in the north 
east, uh, I'm sorry, northwest of China, and uh, Fenyang is a very, very small county, and therefore I'm definitely uh, was born into a place that is very, very basic and uh, almost giving me the perspective of looking up from the ground up. I was born in the 1970s, as I said. Therefore, uh, when I was seven or eight years old, that's the beginning of the reform of China. And definitely the, the decades since, or three decades since, I'm living in this fast-changing pace of society and China and the reform of policies. And uh, to me, films came into my life in high school or middle school that I do think that uh, at the time, my experience spending in so-called video rooms, and these are rooms that at the time you can sit 40 people in it and basically just a TV screen, and then we will watch bootleg uh, pirated Hong Kongese and Taiwanese films, and I really spent the most amazing six years of my life in those rooms. And uh, of course, these will be films from Hong Kong by directors such as Wu Yusheng or Xu He. Uh, and one of my favorite films is actually by a director called Wu Yusheng. I think English name is Zhang Wu. Yes. And uh, and this film is called Killers. And I definitely have seen that film more than ten times. And actually, in a lot of my films, you can see you can actually hear that the, the soundtrack of this particular film. So in high school, and I started the the stage of my life being a po- uh, poet. And uh, it's, a, it's a big thing in the 80s just because I think that's the easiest way for students and people to actually express themselves is through poetry. And uh, because I spent so much time doing this whole poetry, compiling different poetry, putting it into print, and therefore I was really bad with other subjects, and as a result, I didn't really pass the the college entrance exam at uh, graduate <laughs> high school. And at the time, my father thought that since I didn't pass and got into college and universities, and that really will put me into the, uh, I will pretty much have to stay in the small town that I grew up with. And uh, therefore, for me, a way out is to go to our school. And that's why I got into the art school in 1991 and uh, got into the art school. But in the year of 1991, it's a turning point for me because that was the first time I actually had the chance to watch and see the film by Chen Kaige, which is Yellow Earth. And that's really something that changed my life. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to be a director. And therefore, uh, as a result, I, I got into the Central Academy, the Beijing Film Academy in 1993, and I started with my journey as a filmmaker. And what, what was it about the film of Chen Kaige that was so important for you? And, and I ask because I know that uh, later on in your career, you would be uh, critical of the fifth generation filmmakers for looking too much at the history of China and not enough at the contemporary situation of, of China. Uh, so in, in Yellow Earth, uh, I think what touched me the most is aesthetic that, uh, and the film cabarets of this film, of course, is the Yellow Earth. And this is uh, shot in the west uh, of China. And definitely, it's a landscape that I'm very familiar with, uh, I grew up with. 
And I think this is the first time actually I get to see something that actually represents me and something I'm familiar with, with on film uh, with these images. And this could be the location, this could be the peasants in the movies. And these are all the elements that I'm very, very, very familiar with. And therefore, to me, I do think that uh, this is something that I can do because uh, it provides me freedom, possibility, and this connection I can make between the, the life I'm living in and the film it's, uh, I'm making. So in the past, all I could see would be propaganda from the government and nothing that I can really see reflect my real life. 也第一次描绘了。The other thing that touched me the most is the depiction of impoverished community and environments. And I think this idea of poverty and the hope that people still have within the impoverished environment they're living in is something that I can relate to because growing up that I, I came from a less than privileged uh, environment and back in 1972 I, I can still remember that how, how hungry how starved I was at the time, and really this is definitely the first time I can actually see this, the sense of hunger and uh, starvation uh, in the movie and through the depiction of the movie. Well, and of course, your, your first feature film, Xiao Wu, mm -hmm. um, focuses on these kind of characters. The, the, the main character is a, is a small-time crook, mm -hmm. a, a pickpocket, uh, whose, whose own friend doesn't want to invite him to his wedding. Uh, the movie was uh, made, I think, for about the equivalent of 50,000 American dollars. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, um, after your time at the Beijing Film Academy and the short films you made, you were able to get uh, this first feature together and, and why you wanted to tell this story of this kind of small-time criminal? Of course, I'm experienced this, uh, the beginning of the reform. And of course, it's a transition, and you can still see a lot of the old systems at play. And uh, the old system was that uh, people, when they graduate from uh, academies such as this one, they would be assigned to different work units who work for different studios and uh, governmental uh, studios. And uh, when I was in sophomore years, that uh, I, I first uh, came in contact with the concept of independent filmmaking. And uh, at the time, I do remember that uh, once a week, we will have the chance to watch two films, the most recent films produced by the studio system. But at the same time, I, I was very, very disappointed and discouraged because of these films that they have nothing to do with the reality of China at the time. And uh, it's not until uh, I have the chance to read this particular book by a French filmmaker talking about independent filmmaking and that really got me going and got me hooked on this particular idea to do your own thing, to get outside of the system and to finance your own movie and really express yourself independently. So this is how I got to make my first short films. Uh, it's called One Day in Beijing, and literally, it's actually, I shot it one day in Beijing, in Tiananmen Square. And, uh, and after that, I, I move on to my second short film, and it's called Xiaoshan Go, Go Going Home. home. Going home. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is actually financed by all my college classmates, and uh, through the 
the work, the part-time job that we did, whether or not it's to do advertisement for other companies, and uh, it's just people just uh, pitch in, and uh, we have the money for about 10,000 RMB. That's you can do the math for the U.S. dollar. Uh, and so about 1,500 uh, U.S. dollars for this particular uh, short film. And uh, at the time, we have all the uh, people in this particular club. Club we call it the the Young Experimental Filmmaker Club, and uh, you will have uh, people from the different clubs, including the the, the production clubs, uh, the art fine art clubs, the recording clubs, so that we actually have a basic functional uh, production team that in this particular uh, group that we organize ourselves. And uh, this is actually a movie about a chef came from the Henan province to work in Beijing and uh, during the spring festivals that he wanted to go home but he didn't want to go home alone. Therefore, he embarked on this journey to find companions for the trip to go back home and that's that's how to uh how i use him as a vehicle to explore the issues of migrant workers uh, in china and i think this is how i started uh, to examine the the reality issues and the, the real issues of china through this particular films and it was shown in hong kong's short film festivals and got a lot of uh, good feedbacks and one particular producers that got very interested and really wanted to collaborate with me and that's how I handed him the script for the next film. 嗯,當時那個給那個製片人的那個劇本是一個短,也是一個短片叫做夜色溫柔。And uh, the script I handed to him is actually still a short film and it's about uh I'm going to translate uh, loosely is that uh hmm. Uh, a beautiful <laughs> night. It's a beautiful night, I guess. And uh, it's actually about a story set in Beijing of these two lovers, and they have been in love for a long, long time, but never had the chance to be together alone. And uh, finally, the, the male counterpart of this particular group uh, found their room, and they decided to experiment a lot of things, including sex and other things. It's a typical young girl, young boy story. And uh, after this particular short film, I, uh, it happened to be the time of spring, films, uh, spring festivals, and it's a very important festival and in China. And therefore, I haven't, I, since I haven't been back uh, to my hometown for a long, long time, I decided to uh, went back to Fenyang from Beijing after this film. And when I went back to Fenyang after a year that I have been haven't visited Fenyang for a year, the change that I witnessed was shocking, and it, I was so shocked and so surprised by what I saw. And according to the economists in China, they somehow pinpoint two periods of. Uh, the transformation and the reform. One is from 78 to 89, and the other one is from 94 to 95. And because of the, the second wave of change and reform, uh, I can really see that how that registered uh, in terms of the landscape of the Fenyang city where I grew up in. 
and the, the major boulevard of that city is totally destroyed and it, it was leveled. And this is an old town, an old county of 400, 500 years old county and just the memory of it suddenly within one year totally disappeared. And to me, it's quite a shock for me and the disappearance of the bakeries and all the childhood memories, the, uh, the, the neighbors. And again, it's just something that is so shocking to me. I, I couldn't believe what I saw. The other thing that I observed at the time is the interpersonal relationship, uh, the, breakdown, the breakdowns of interpersonal relationship, and whether or not this is because my friend, because of marriage, that I have some kind of generational conflict with the parents, or other things. It's just all about the, the conflict among people. And I do think that if you go back to the root of everything, all the conflicts, it's actually about money. And I do think that this is the first time I realized that uh, the, the social context that I make my films and my, the, the environment I live in is uh, it's this fast changing China because of the change of the policies and the change of going from plane to market economy. And that's definitely this fast, pace, uh, fast changing China is the con- common themes of all my movies in the past 10 years. Actually, I have uh, two friends from elementary schools, and one of them actually turned out to be a theft, and the other one turned out to be a prison guard. And just so that happened that actually the, the, the thief and, uh, was actually detained and jailed in this particular prison that the other friend was a prison guard. And uh, so I will ask them whether or not they have the chance to meet each other. I say, yeah, sure, we had a chance to meet each other. And funny enough that the, this particular uh, criminal and, uh, keep asking me about a lot of philosophical questions. For example, you know, what's the purpose of life and why, why, do, we, you know, why do we live and on earth and what, what's our purpose? And I do think that this, uh, because of the change, the fast pace, uh, fast change of the chi- reality in China, I think that really confused a lot of people, even for people such a criminal, such as this thief, that uh, even he needed to think about what's the meaning of life and what's my purpose. And after I heard this story, I got so excited. I think this is great, great materials, and I started to write a script for it. And within three weeks, I finished the script. And I handed the script to the Hong Kong producer, and I told him that can I change my mind. Can I take it back? Instead of making a short film, I'm going to make a long one. And I'm going to use the exact same budget to finish this feature film. Uh, but since that, I have limited budget. I'm going to go from uh, the, the 35 millimeters to 60 millimeters just because of the budget issues. And I faxed the, the script to the producers. He liked it. He loved it. And we decided to make that into a reality. And the, 
in the April in April next year started to shoot and to make my first film. And because I think uh, as the first time feature filmmakers, I think that the desire and the passion I had is just totally outrageous. And, and um, I, I definitely will say that I was crazy um, in terms of how I shot the film in 19 days. And uh, not only I worked all day, but also after we finished the shoot every day, I will, I will drink with my crews and uh, non-stop and then we woke up and not well, we didn't sleep and then we we will start working again and I, I the whole time my mind was very clear and uh it almost the supernatural power just took over me and i finished the film as i said in 19 19 days and that was in 1997 that's how i finished my film i sent it uh, i was part of the berlin film festival and that really started this whole journey of the later films and that uh, paved the way for my later creation. Well, and I, I think, you know, for people who may not have seen Xiao Wu, that the, this energy th that you're talking about, this kind of nervous energy, it, it's really evident on the screen because the film is very fast. It's shot a lot with a handheld camera. It, it, it almost uh, has the feel of a French New Wave film or a, a John Cassavetes film. And, and when we think of your, your, your later films, the, the visual style is much more formal. There's a lot of uh, elaborate um, tracking shots with a camera that almost seems to be dancing with the actors at times. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the, the sort of development of your, your visual style, your approach to using the camera from Xiao Wu to the present. I definitely have to say that in terms of the visual images and the aesthetics that I choose, it really has to do with the subject matter. For example, when I sh uh, shot Pickpocket, Xiao Wu, and then to me, the most important thing is to capture the chaotic street scenes. And uh, not a lot of people understand that there's how many people that you can actually have in small county such as what I grew up in, and I really want to capture that uh, only the, the, the locals actually can understand that who is who doing what and, and the structure of this, this huge, uh, dense population. And I really want to use this handheld camera technique to showcase the chaotic street scenes that you will see people run into the camera, run into the frame, and, uh, and just to present that sense of reality and a, a sense of realism. And not only with the shot, with the visual image, but also the sound. I really want to somehow capture this, the, the sounds that you can hear on the, on the street, whether or not these are pop music, whether or not these are the street vendors and the people um, walking in and out, and just to capture these lively scenes and chaotic street scenes. And I remember after uh, doing the post-production, that uh, when I listened to the sound recording, I still I wasn't satisfied just because it's not chaotic enough. So I really forced uh, the engineer and uh, to, to really mixing other noises, other street sounds, and uh, and of course it's a, you know, at the time the engineer was a girl, and uh, she kept complaining that 
you can't do that. You, you can't even bear make out what this is anymore. And uh, therefore, she actually quit her job. And, um, and I had to hire another engineer to somehow put everything together. So to me, I do think that this is my sort of rebellious reaction uh, against the, the, the films I have seen in the past that is sort of this fake superficiality and uh, simulated reality. Um, I'm sorry, the fake and the uh, superficiality that I observe in other movies. With my movie, I really want to showcase that how real this is and to represent the realism that I can, I can uh, present in my film. For my second film, for Platform, this is a story set in 1979 to 89 about a... Uh, a touring performance group, and I shot this film in 1999. And to me, at the time, I really think about how am I going to capture these 10 years with, um, with this particular film I'm going to make now. And I really think that an important component is, is to, uh, to keep myself uh, in the distance and to give myself a very objective uh, perspective on this. Therefore, you can see the quiet way of the way to deal with the camera shot, and it's much quieter. It's more about the characters uh, within the films and also almost as if that, uh, I'm just the observer of what's happening uh, within these 10 years. And to me, I also think about uh, the other change uh, going from the first to the second one is uh, the narratives that I use. So uh, for the movie Platform, uh, at first when I wrote the script, for every plot line, for every ca- character, I actually have very clear the cause and effect and the conti- uh, continuities of how the plot will evolve. Very clear. But uh, for example, the, uh, the book part later, uh, for example, the characters in this pretty movie, the female characters that used to be a performer for this particular troupe and later become a tax collector and uh, she had problems and issues with uh, meeting with other, um, uh, dating other people and couldn't really find her husbands and uh, later on finally after the troupe returned to the hometown she actually uh, got together with uh, an old friends, uh, old lovers of hers uh, during the, the touring uh, experience. So uh, it's the, the sequence of things, the reasons and why, these are explained very, very clearly in my original script. And the more I look, uh, look at it, after 10 days of shooting of this, I think that there's something wrong with this narrative, narrative this way to tell a story. Um, because I, I start to think about that, I remember one time that I have this neighbor, a little girl, that she was in junior high school. And I remember one time in, at noon, I saw her and at around 10 o'clock um, in the morning, not at noon, around 10 o'clock in the morning on the street, and I realized that, oh, okay, she wasn't in school because she's supposed to at school. And then about a few days later, I saw her somehow in the, the, the post office uniform. And by seeing that, by observing that, now I know that she quit school and she found a job in the post office. 
And later on, I saw her、uh, biking on the street with a, a boy following her, and I then know and knew at the time that she's in love or someone is、uh, somehow、uh, after her. And、uh, not long、uh, after that, I heard the firecrackers uh, uh, from my neighbors, and I realized that she got married. Now. Uh, the thing is that I I have no idea why she quit school, why she got a job in the post office, why she fell in love with this particular boy, and why she got married. But that、uh, the change of this different status by not really dealing with this in depth and being clear about everything that I have to say by not saying that actually give. Give me and give the audience more room for imagination, for them to come up there with with their own conclusion, and I think that really、uh, changed the way I tell story and my narrative、uh, because this、uh, the second film and I I have wait well ten day after the the shooting I decided to change the direction. Well, in all these films we're talking about, Xiaowu Platform and your subsequent film Unknown Pleasures. They were widely seen internationally, but they were all censored at home in mainland China.、Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you, and how these films were seen? To what extent they were seen in China? Now, these Xiaowu Zhan Tang and Ren Xiaowu, these films are all we all know and are very familiar with. But these films are all censored abroad. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? 有没有机会可以看到这三部片？ Mm-hmm. 然后他们对这部这三部片了解的程度是怎么样 ？All right, of course, the the first three movies they were banned in China because of censorship, and、uh, there are a couple of reasons. Well, let me start with the first one.、Uh, during、uh, at the end of nineteen nineties,、uh, uh, there was actually regulation saying that an individual cannot make films. Only the、uh, governmental Uh, state-run studios, the 16 studios that they can make films. So I I wasn't aware of that, and this is not until the the film bureau actually one day called me in and said that you know I was a student at the time when I made Pickpocket, and they said I already violated regulation and therefore I was I was banned from making film anymore. And of course then I just started this whole negotiation with the system and trying to. Um, make rooms for、uh, my next films, and actually for platform, I'm trying to collaborate with the the state-run studios and、uh, talking to producers and trying to、uh, really shoot these films uh, in uh, in their、uh, with their support. And、uh, when you know, almost till the point that we are almost trying、uh, start the, the whole production process, the shooting process, the the leader、uh, came to me and said that well. Guess what? We are not going to make this film anymore because someone from the top saying that you are only 29 years old. How are you going to make films about 10 years of histories in China? And why not just wait for、uh, a lot more years when you go from a young Jiang Jiangke to an old Jiang Jiangke? Then maybe we can come back to talk about this. And、uh, so at the time, I, it really it drove me crazy. And、uh, so I decided to broke to break away from that particular collaboration, and then I made the film myself.、Um, so that's that part. The second part, I do think that in in、uh, the end of 1990s, you also、uh, see this 
you can see the, the, the arrival of the new media, including VCD, including DVD, including the, uh, the BBS. So uh, what happened is that um, at the time, uh, my film was released and distributed in Japan and Europe, and therefore there are a lot of bootleg and uh, pirated copies DVD copies you can actually find in China. And not only a lot of people saw my films, a lot of people actually wrote, uh, wrote reviews about these films and put them on BBS. And uh, uh, so this is whole things that people discussing films and of the films that they have watched. So again, yes, it was, they were banned uh, officially in China, but at the same time, it's accessible uh, to uh, the general public through pirated and the bootleg DVDs. And I really have a mixed feelings about uh, pirated and uh, bootleg movies and DVDs just because I remember the first time when I went to the, uh, when I saw my own films, the, the, the bootleg copy of it, the platform, and uh, the the shop owner actually approached me and said, do you want to check out this new film that we have? <laughs> and, they, uh, and he took out this film, of course, it's my film platform. So uh, right at that moment, I have the sense of, wow, someone stole my baby. And uh, so, but afterwards, I went on to BBS and started to realize that this movie has been so widely discussed, wide, widely discussed by a lot of people. And then I started to feel that, oh, I'm so proud of my kids my baby that uh, is doing well. So again, it's this mixed feelings about the, the issues of uh, bootleg DVDs and pirated DVDs in China. So uh, later on, uh, for the second version or the, a different version of the bootleg and uh, pirated DVD, actually on the package, it stated that this film has been banned by the Chinese government. Therefore, we as bootleg DVD makers, we have the responsibility to somehow dispute that, dispute this. And again, almost they have the sense of obligation uh, to, to uh, somehow dispute the films. And actually, not only that, they actually have articles and reviews from uh, from French reviewers, from other countries writing about this particular movie. So I think it's very interesting that how uh, the role they play and what kind of mission and uh, sense of responsibility they took on themselves. Later, there was another, uh, another change, and uh, this was in 2003. And there's a policy shift in terms of how the government see culture as an, whether or not it's a, just a tool for propaganda or as an actual industry. And they have moved from uh, viewing uh, films as purely a tool for propaganda into that this could be created as an industry uh, for uh, the economy. So therefore, uh, for the censorship system, uh, the, the laws and regulations, uh, there's some kind of uh, more freedom uh, within the system and loosen up the regulation a bit and including myself 20 about around 20 filmmakers actually uh, were banned in the past but now that we, are, we were told that we now we can start to make we can make film now and uh, that's how I started with my fourth film 
which is the world, and it's a film that actually uh, can be uh, officially uh, seen in China in theaters. All right. See if we have some questions out here in the in the audience. Yes, right, right here. You're listening to the close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone, and iPad, and Android devices, lets you browse and discover our year-round programs and films, get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news, share with friends via social media, create your own custom schedule, and more. Download the Film Society app for free at iTunes and Google Play. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. And now, back to our program. The question for anyone who couldn't hear it is about when he was first able to see films from outside of China and and, uh, what impact those had on him. So much okay, these kind of go for why? So I think uh, it started in 1980s for me uh, to have the chance and access to foreign movies. And these are translated movies and films from East. Uh, Eastern Europe, from former Soviet Union, Japan, or India. And uh, I, I do think that at the time in uh, 1980s, the films that we saw, I, I don't think that they have a lot of cultural values. And uh, I have written an article talking about this exactly, uh, um, that this is an era that we can only read films, that we cannot see films. And the films that we we could read will be the scripts uh, could be from director Bergman or the Italian new realism uh, wave of uh, scripts and a lot of translated scripts that we can actually we could actually read but there there weren't any movies that we can actually see so uh, it's not until very later on we had the chance to watch the DVDs of these films that we have read script, uh, scripts for and in terms of the system, the, the film import system, uh, till now that, that there's no such a thing of, of free import or uh, open uh, import for foreign films, then there are two state-run entities that they control how many movies that uh, we can, uh, the country can import. And it's about 20 to 30 a year, and most of them are Hollywood movies, maybe some French movies, but most definitely the majority of them will be commercial movies. And therefore, it really neglect a huge part of other type of films and other type of movies from other parts of the world. And that's the reason why it's so popular with this whole pirated and uh, bootleg DVDs and in China, just because that with these bootleg, bootleg DVDs and um, um, pirated DVDs, you can see any type of uh, films from any countries, from different type of directors, could be Cobra, could be Martin Scorsese, all those uh, um, uh, leading movie directors from different countries. Uh, on the inv- individual level, uh, I think that being a student in Beijing Film Academy, I'm really privileged because we do have access to three different types of movie, including the French New Wave movie, the the Japanese movie from the uh, 60s and 70s, as well as the former Soviet Union movies. Uh, right here. Yeah. Do you have access to YouTube or any type of uh, user-generated sites? Uh, this is something that's definitely a phenomenon you can observe right now in China. 
especially young people that will really go online to not only watch movies, but also they will put their movie on if they don't have the chance for distribution uh, for young makers, uh, filmmakers. And uh, also the reason for that, I think, maybe has something to do with what happened in the 1980s and the end, towards the end of 1990s, that it's a re- it was a really difficult time for films and movies, and no one um, actually goes, you know, it's not a, a something people do to actually go to movie theaters to, to watch movies. And as a result, that uh, for mid-sized or small-sized cities in China, that all the cinemas, they actually, they just totally disappeared. So uh, in my hometown, I think that uh, the, the previous location for cinemas right now have turned into supermarket, turned into furniture store, and for, or for uh, uh, stock workers and uh, uh, selling and uh, buying stocks. So again, I, I think that uh, because of the lack of the, the, the venues for, to show films and a lot of people, they now resort to the online access for films and movies. Uh, yes, you, sir. The, the question for anyone who couldn't hear it is about the Olympics, his impression of it, but and also his impression of the director Zhang Yimou's staging of the Olympics, the opening ceremony, being a, 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 also a formerly banned filmmaker of the fifth generation. It is understandable. Chinese people, including myself, have high hope and high expectation of this particular event, just because that we have been through a lot since the, the end of Qing Dynasty till now, the, the past 100 years, that uh, this path towards modernity to become modern nation, modern society, to somehow examine our uh, traditional past, and through war, through sufferings, that we really want to use this as a chance to show the world and that, that uh, how we want to move forward as a, as a modern country and therefore the expectation and the hope attached to that. So for the opening and closing ceremony, I didn't have the chance to watch the closing or only had the chance via TV. Uh, through TV, I watched the opening ceremony. To me, my impression was that uh, there a lot of focus on the history part, but not a lot about the future. And the other impression is that it's too uniform, it's all about synchronization, there's no individuality in it. And freedom. It's what's lacking. Uh, yes, in the back. So, question partly about the hybrid of documentary and narrative techniques in both Still Life and 24 City, um, to which we could also add that uh, Mr. Jaws made several uh, actual documentaries in the last few years, including Useless, which was shown here last year. Definitely that's one of the reasons why I feel so compelled to use this particular way documentary or in conjunction with other way of telling story to make my films because I do think that there are a lot of regrets in terms of the Chinese histories uh, I can speak of. For example, the whole period of time, about 10 years period of time from 1966 to 1976 uh, during Cultural Revolution, that this is uh, 
this is a, a period of history that you and we cannot really see a lot of image of and uh, almost as if it's a, uh, a, dis- a disappeared history of our time. And I really think that not only that you get, don't get to hear individual stories, that, that there are not a lot of images that left um, behind, but also the moving images part, that most of them there are this grand narrative created by the government and as a documentary and that really does, has nothing to do with the individuals. So I do think that there's this uh, blank and uh, this gap in terms of the missing part of the history within uh, recent Chinese past. And therefore, as an independent film, filmmaker, being a free uh, filmmaker, I really uh, understand that my cultural context and my social and uh, context at the time is this fast-changing China that I'm observing. And really, uh, the, the sense of fast and quick, uh, fast disappearing of memories is an, an issue and topic that I feel compelled uh, to deal with. To me, film as a medium not only has its purpose to create fantasy, dreams, but also, also to reflect the reality that we live in, such as the films I did previously. And now I'm moving on to the next important components of what the purpose of, and the role of film must serve is to uh, record and document memories of the time. And that's, it's, that is something that I'm doing uh, as we speak. And even when I'm tr- trying to just make documentary films, the more I make the documentary film, the more I realize that I need to have the fictional components to it. It's just because I do think that uh, when we see histories and see memories, it's a mix of facts, reality, and imaginations. And that's why uh, I, although I started with the documentary films, later on I, I found the need to incorporate the fictional uh, components to it. My previous films, I started with a documentary called In Public, and then I moved on to a fictional film called Unknown Pleasure. And then I started with a documentary called Dong, and then from there I moved to a fictional story called Still Life. And then for this film, I started with a documentary, pure documentary, and later I, re- I realized that I need to somehow uh, juxtapose uh, just suppose the fictional components to it and present it into one film. I'd like to ask one more thing in closing, which is that uh, you said earlier that uh, your early films grew out of a kind of a feeling of alarm about the, the changes that you had witnessed in China as a whole and in your hometown in particular. It seems that though that feeling of alarm has become more complicated in your recent films. Uh, useless for example, gives us a woman who's a, a successful fashion designer in China whose work has uh, been seen around the world, and she is obviously a product of this new market economy. And uh, 24 City ends on a very powerful note when this young woman, played by Zhao Tao, tells us that she will be a success in the new market economy because of the fact that she's the daughter of workers. And I'm wondering if over the course of this decade, how you, how you would say your feelings about the changes in China have themselves changed and evolved? 
他想要了解一下你在过去十年对这个中国这样的改变。So, personally, thinking about the the change in China, I have changed my my perspective as well. At first, what I focus on is actually mostly about the again the fast change in China, but what the impact mostly will be the impact about on individuals and the 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 hardship and the suffering that they. Have been through. Uh, in China, we can send astronauts to space, or is it about something else? And to me, I think something even more important is the modernization of the respect to human freedom, to individual freedom, to indi- and uh, I think that should be the core of how do you define modernity. And uh, so through systems, and I really think that there should be some change as well in order to catch up with the fast-changing materialism and the technology that we experience right now in China. So definitely that the focus has shifted to ask this question of what is modernity, and I really want to somehow pay more attention to something that has been neglected and I think should be the core of modernity, which is about individual freedom and respect. Xiaoshenko, thanks so much for spending this time with us. Uh, this Thank you. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.